0: I don't think that you can ever fully prevent PTSD unless we somehow eliminate all the war and natural disasters and accidents. And I certainly think that we can prevent toxic work culture and we can certainly prevent domestic violence by learning how to speak and act safely with and among one another. But it really is key when it comes down to awareness, education, and then choosing different responses. Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoy today's featured message.
1: Hi, it's Mike with the Portage County Safety Council. I'm here with my friend Kelly Youngkins from Family and Community Services. Welcome back to the podcast, Kelly.
0: Hey, thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Kelly, we're here to talk about PTSD as part of our Mental Health Awareness Month. But before we get into that, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do at Family and Community Services?
0: I am a clinical program supervisor at Family and Community Services, in particular at the Valley Counseling Services site here in Warren, Ohio, and I provide clinical supervision to our programs and staff.
1: So Kelly, we're here to talk about PTSD today. For those people that may not be familiar with what that exactly is, what is PTSD?
0: I'm so glad you asked. So let's break down what PTSD is. And PTSD is a stress response to an exposure of actual or threatened perceived threat of death, injury, or violence.
1: That's a pretty big deal. I want to talk about that for one second because it doesn't have to be a real physical threat, correct? It's just a perceived threat.
0: It can also be a perceived threat, whether it's an acute single incident or it's a chronic repeated incident, multiple incidents that threaten safety. And if you think about it, safety is psychological, it's emotional, it's physical, it's sexual. Anytime our safety is threatened, threatened death of injury or violence that leaves us feeling vulnerable, helpless, and powerless is something that can create PTSD symptoms or a disorder.
1: So in other words what we're really saying is you don't have to have this big traumatic event to actually have PTSD.
0: No, and while there's the stereotypical response of, you know, the category of, you know, our, our returning veterans from war right. who absolutely suffered PTSD symptoms, you know, people can demonstrate symptoms of p- post traumatic stress if they've experienced a natural disaster if they're a witness or a victim of domestic violence, if they're a witness or a victim of a traumatic tragic car accident or other type of accident or injury, because remember, it goes back to threatened death, injury, or violence. And, uh, you know, another piece could be experiencing a toxic work culture because there may be a threat of physical, emotional, cognitive safety there as well. And so whether you directly experience an incident or you're a witness to it, it also can matter whether you've learned of something traumatic or experienced an incident repeatedly.
1: Like vicarious or secondary trauma. That'd be the correct term for that.
0: And that's where that comes from is if you are a witness or you learn of somebody else going through something traumatic, what that could look like is somebody might then find themselves having a preoccupation with with something that somebody has told them or some kind of image that they've shown them. They might have intrusive thoughts and images As a result of even learning about somebody else's trauma.
1: Right. And I know the field you and I work in when we're working with clients in that particular environment, there's moments where we have to really embrace self-care and just take some room for ourselves as well, where we just sit back and have to take breath just because even though we haven't personally may not have gone through that, but just the emotions and we're literally hardwired for that in Neurologically, they call it mirror neurons that literally trigger based on what we see or perceive. And it makes us have empathy for someone else, but it also causes our body to react in the same way. Now, I don't want to get into that, but if anyone wants to look into that, there's some great TED talks on mirror neurons. It's fantastic. And actually, I did a train on it a long time ago, and there's a podcast available out there for that. So just want to throw that out there. But let's stick to this for a moment. Now, if I'm in a, a marriage situation where someone's continually verbally abusive, I could literally develop potentially PTSD from that situation, correct?
0: Absolutely. Because if there is repeated incidences of threats, whether those are actual threats, verbal threats, that diminishes the perception and the feeling of psychological, emotional, and physical safety. And so people can then begin to show other symptoms in a domestic violence relationship where They have flashbacks to very intense arguments or maybe physical altercations that happened within a relationship unit or family unit. They may go through significant efforts to avoid certain people, places, conversations or situations um, as a result of that connected fear um, from being threatened actually or perceived. They may also express that they, maybe they have trouble mem- remembering certain pieces of information because their, their memory is actually blocking that because of the intense emotional overload from that previous situation. Or they can become triggered to having really uh, reckless behavior. They may become very irritable and angry, or they may become hyper vigilant. So you might notice that in somebody where they seem to always be on edge and really hypervigilant to their environment, which means they're very, if they hear a sound that startles them, they have a high startle response. Some of those are some symptoms of PTSD.
1: So I want to tell my testimony real quick. And I definitely don't want to make this about me, but I think it paints a picture because I went through in my 20s, this stage where I started having flashbacks of abuse as a kid. And it wasn't anyone in my immediate family, but it was some distant relatives. And I went through this abuse. And I would probably most of my life than I had ever happened. Then I get like 21, 22, 23. And literally, I can remember taking naps and reliving. Like I could see it like third person, like me going through the abuse. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was in college at the time and uh, I was delivering pizzas. And I remember like bagging pizza orders. But as I'm looking up streets and looking on the map where I have to go in my mind, in my imagination, I guess you would say I was literally reliving trauma. I was seeing it in my mind. And it made work real difficult. Mm-hmm. And there's a couple times where I went out the back door and I just grabbed my head and I'm like, get out of my head kind of yeah. thing. Like, why am I thinking about this? And I had no idea what I was going through. And if you would have asked me if I was doing some kind of PTSD or mental health back then, I would have been like, you're out of your mind. What do you talk about? And I probably would have got mad and started saying some things you don't want to hear. But the reality right. of it was when I started dealing with that, I didn't go to the counseling because it just wasn't on my radar, unfortunately. And I wish that was different. But I heard a person say, Forgive someone and keep confessing you forgive until you actually do. And I know that's probably not very uh, clinical, but for me, it worked at the time. So I just every time I thought about it, I would just say, I forgive you and name the person's name you know, over and over and over again. But eventually what I saw was a lot of the rage I had back then, you know, the bar fights and the different stuff I did in those Mm -hmm. college years. I, I and yeah. even some of the, the substance abuse like binge drinking and different things.
0: Mm-hmm. I noticed
1: as soon as I walked out dealing with that trauma, the rage was gone. I remember looking at alcohol that you know I would binge drink at that moment and I'm like, I don't need this anymore. And so mm-hmm. like sobriety at that point was easy because there was no, no pain to cover
0: up. But I really appreciate you sharing that testimony because it really paints a helpful picture of what so many people experience and we're trying to put words to this. Because when you name it, you tame it. And that's what you're talking about, Mike, is, you know, the the substance abuse didn't need to be a part of your regulating strategy because you had worked through the arousal state. You know, when we use substances to numb our arousal states, that's just a mechanism for us to bring our arousal states down. And so if you find other healthier coping mechanisms to, to regulate your your nervous system, that helps you cope better to where you don't need those strategies anymore. Because PTSD will create arousal and reactivity. And the arousal and reactivity is mental, it's emotional, it's physical. And there's a a popular book called The Body Keeps the Score. And if you ever want to check out a resource that really (laughs) breaks that down of what arousal and reactivity looks like and how it's stored in the body and how it comes out, that's a helpful resource for what you're talking about, Mike, that you experienced.
1: Right. And that was probably fun to work with, but there was moments where I would kind of snap at people and do, I won't get into the details. Again, I don't want to make it about my story, but why I like to bring that story up is because I had no idea I was struggling with PTSD or any kind of mental health until I started working for the agency and I would talk to people. Hey, I dealt with this. What would, what would you say that was? You know, that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, shoot. So one of my goals for these podcasts is really to kind of break it down. So people like me in my 20s would understand, hey, I really need help. See, everyone around me had a degree of dysfunction and binge drinking. All my friends were like that. Grew up in a poor yeah. rural community in Portage County. And so it was kind of normal. And it was just people, oh, you have your mom's temper. That's kind of how we addressed it. So we just thought it was just like genetics. There's nothing you could do about it. And it wasn't genetics at all. My mom went through abuse as a a little girl as well. So there was a pattern there that we just kind of wrote off as like the family temper and different things. And that same person doesn't exist. And so I didn't drink every day, but I would drink large quantities, you know, where I'd black out like often, like once, you know what I mean? Couldn't remember what I did the mm-hmm. night and just that kind of stuff. And so I remember a couple of friends and I were, you know, getting a little bit of trouble, nothing serious, but just like being rowdy at bars and getting banned from bars and just being doing stupid stuff. We'd have the phone conversation. We'd feel really bad the next day. And we're like, we're not going to do this. We're like, hey, let's go to the movies. Let's do something to avoid the bar scene. And then we would try to go do all we would try to like fight against the the substance abuse oh, and it would never yeah. work. And sometimes it would actually trigger more abuse because you're like, this is terrible. What are we doing? Let's go to the bar. You know? But when we really dealt with the trauma, I had no desire to go into those places at all or cover something up. So the reason why I'm telling this story isn't self-pity or anything. It's literally just saying, hey, some of us may be going through this and not even realizing it. And some of the issues that we really struggle with, like substance abuse or some of these other things, we've been trying to fight for so long. But it's really maybe a matter of dealing with the trauma we went through. That we may not even recognize as trauma. I've had people tell me, you know, well, I, you know, I had a hard life, but there's nothing traumatic that happened. But you see clearly the signs of PTSD in your life. You know what I mean? Of just the different things.
0: Absolutely.
1: I don't know. What would you because tell people in that situation? How do we recognize that we even have it?
0: Yeah. I, I love that you ask that. and Because you bring up in, in sharing your, your story and your thought process, it brings up a couple of things. One is that our bodies scream for homeostasis. You know, we are organisms that are always fighting for homeostasis. So when you talk about that instinctual instinctual drive to go use those substances, you know, your body was so very aroused and activated by the trauma that you stored in your body. And so you had found an effective coping mechanism at the time to bring yourself down a bit. And when you finally work through your trauma to where you you don't live in such a hyper aroused and reactive state, some of those maladaptive coping strategies you don't need anymore. You know, behavior is purposeful. And so that's something that I would always encourage people out there is instead of judging yourself or getting, getting, you know, giving yourself a lot of grief about why you do what you do, get curious about why you do what you do because behavior is purposeful and all of our behavior meets a need. And then when you start to think about it that way, you may be able to unpack why you're reacting and feeling and thinking the way you are. And then that will lead you to un- better understanding the symptoms that you may be experiencing.
1: It's like that silly thing that we all can't see in the iceberg diagram. Really, yes. you hate to say it, but there's truth to it. Like there's like 20% that everyone sees at the top and the 80% that's really going on below the yes. surface. Yes. That's really true though, when it comes to behavior. So I had an old friend that worked in a diet clinic and she would always tell me and say, Mike, you know, like what's crazy is the people that were successful, that came through our program successful, it had absolutely nothing to do with food choices and all this stuff. Like, she's like, there's such Mm -hmm. an overemphasis on eating the right foods. Everyone knows what to eat. She said almost hundred percent of the cases were people that were just emotionally eating from stress or how they felt about themselves. They're all emotional issues. So she's like, so we would sit there and kind of comfort them and coach them through this. And literally they would just begin to lose weight just as a natural byproduct of that. And I was like, wow, we don't really Mm -hmm. think about that too much.
0: Yeah. Because food can be a medicine, but if it's used improperly, it can be a crutch and it can be a barrier towards your health.
1: That's such good information. I want to get back into these other areas of okay. PTSD that we may not normally think of, you know, for some reason everyone I know we talk about this. Like when I think of PTSD, the first thing that comes to mind is war vet. We talked about how that could happen in marriage, and then you mentioned earlier how <laughs> that could happen in the workforce. And since our program is really tied toward or targeting toward employers, what does that look like in a workplace? How can PTSD begin to form at work, right under our noses, and us not even realize it's happening?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, one in particular way that I saw it happen right in front of my eyes is one time I had to address a particular person's behavior in the workplace. As I waited and watched for their verbal response, one didn't come out. And instead there was this flat affect. So there, this person's face was very flat. No words came out and they seemed to just pause. And so some of the ways that this can come out in a workplace is dissociative experiences like basically somebody's not responding or they seem to clam up or withdraw. In other ways, they may persistently avoid having certain conversations. They may avoid handling certain tasks or certain people. In other ways, Maybe they, you seem to be having a great conversation and and working something out and then all of a sudden somebody becomes very difficult and irritable and maybe they have an outburst. They may have experienced some kind of trigger. They might not be able to concentrate. They may talk about that they struggle with their sleep schedule. Those are some of the, the symptoms and behavioral presentations that that can look like.
1: Oh, that's good stuff. And we have an issue in our society, especially in the schools, the level of bullying going on is unbelievable, especially considering we have all these programs. I don't know if you've walked into school lately, but the last couple of times, you know, it's been several years, but even then walking to school, there's like anti-bully stuff everywhere, signs, group projects in the glass cases. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's There seems to yeah. be that everywhere, but it seems to be like there's more bullying now than when we were in school, you know, and I'm in my forties now. And I'm just like, I thought I saw a couple, you know, those handful of rough situations, but it seems like it's, it's much more prevalent or some people might say people are more sensitive to it, but our kids are dealing with this as well. Aren't they?
0: They are, you know, and they experience, you know, especially because developmentally they're all going through these identity formations out there where they're trying to discover who they are and what they're about. And they're trying to establish their sense of belonging, who are their people and why? And I think there seems to be this natural storming and norming among social groups of trying to find where they fit in. And unfortunately, if people have had some difficult times in their life, whether it's from trauma or maybe not so great examples of how to handle their words and their emotions properly, I think what we, what we see is people being, in, kids included, being careless with their words and their feelings. And it may come out in bullying, which creates this sense of lack of safety, because that's really what bullying it boils down to is somebody is feeling unsafe with themselves among their peers or within their school environment. And when we have to take a look at, well, why? Why is that happening? Why are they feeling unsafe? And where is that attack coming from? And why?
1: That's such good information all the way around. I think we kind of laid out a good framework for PTSD. It's not just with the big, you know, natural disaster, the war, the combat stress. Those are very important ones. But I love how we were able to focus in on the classroom, the workplace, our domestic life in regards to spouses, marriage, partners, kids, that kind of thing. And so I think that's good because it really kind of expands how we view PTSD as a culture. You know what I mean? To kind of really get into hey, this isn't just one big event. This is pretty much everywhere. And maybe we just don't see it unless we're going through it. And, you know, I think one of the dangers mm-hmm. of it, and it goes along with the stigma thing too, is we tend to write stuff off. Like, you know, dad, they're yeah. making fun of me at school. You're like, oh, that happens all the time. I've dealt with it. Just you tell them what's up or punch them in the nose. We kind of, we kind of come up with this mm-hmm. or like, you know, in a marriage situation, we kind of just go through or work. Ah, just, that's just how he is. That guy on on a tow motor. He's just like that with everyone. He's just old school. It, it's okay, you know mm-hmm. what I mean. But really, it's not okay because it creates a lot of issues. And I, for one, can attest it really affected my work performance in the 20s. It not not so much not so much as my performance like timing and productivity, but but literally it got me frustrated. It got me irritable with coworkers. That could have potentially Mm -hmm. turned into fights and different things. I mean, there's a lot of different situations where it really affected that. So I guess I'm leading into this one question, Kelly, is like, how can we prevent it? Like personally, first, like if we know we're starting to maybe experience that, how do we recognize that and prevent it? And then second of all, you know, if we're a manager at work, if we're a teacher in the classroom, how can we start to recognize, hey, the environment we've allowed to take place, the culture, the things that are the norms of everyday life at work or at school is starting to cross that line. What can we do to start to shift that so we don't create space for people to enter into PTSD?
0: I think that's such a, a great question, Mike. And it's such a great initiative that we can all have an impact with if we simply increase our awareness in our education of what. Mental health issues really look like. And I know that you and I try on this podcast to really paint the picture for what that looks like. And so increasing awareness is going to help helping people understand that if they're experiencing distressing, intrusive thoughts and images, flashbacks, trouble sleeping, hypervigilance, you know, learning what those symptoms are. And if they're experiencing it, not dismissing it and talking to a trusted friend or even a professional. Same thing with the education piece, like helping other people in the workplace realize that's what it may be. That's how, you know, a trauma response may be manifesting itself. And so getting curious about it and checking in with people, being brave and courageous to have those conversations, because when we are aware of what we're really working with or experiencing, we can then make sure that we learn how to speak and move safely with one another. You're not, I don't think that you can ever fully prevent PTSD unless we somehow eliminate all the war and natural disasters and accidents. And I certainly think that we can prevent toxic work culture and we can certainly prevent domestic violence by learning how to speak and act safely with and among one another. But it really is key when it comes down to awareness, education, and then choosing different responses.
1: Wow. That's such good information. I agree with you. You're not always going to be able to prevent war, and natural disasters, obviously, but you can prevent toxic war cultures. That's well said. That's beautiful. Same thing with domestic violence. We can learn how to communicate and get through these things. So that doesn't form. I asked a few friends and colleagues what questions they would have for PTSD. So I got a list for you. If that's okay, do a little Q and a in this, you know, we don't have to, you know, exhaustively answer every detail because then there's a real complex kind of thing. So my friend Leah asked, she said, I'd like to know if there's a difference between PTSD and other trauma. Is it a person-to-person basis or is there a scientific definition to consider PTSD?
0: Of course, there's a scientific de- definition of what PTSD is, but I believe what she may be asking is really the understanding that it may present itself in people differently. And so it all comes down to what the how the symptoms and behaviors and reactions cluster so, PTSD is going to generally look similar in many people, but it will slightly uh, manifest itself slightly differently based on who the person is.
1: And another question is how do they walk people through PTSD without having to relive everything?
0: That's a great question. And that is something that I believe EMDR, which is a modality of therapy, is excellent at. It's a modality that helps prepare people first. It's called front-loading. That's a part of the therapeutic process that you prepare people to deal with dealing with and working through and talking about distressing thoughts and feelings so that the exposure, the reliving it, does not unravel people. There will be that to a degree, but trained, skilled EMDR therapists can help people walk through that.
1: This is from our friend Sarah. How can you help your loved one get through it and be supportive? How to keep yourself and your children safe and be supportive at the same time. I think we talked about this before the interview. She said, I picked these questions because a client of my, uh, of a relative had really bad PTSD after an, a deployment and it wasn't a good situation. I feel like it would be extremely difficult choice between being there for a spouse with PTSD and also making sure that everyone was safe. That's a really good question. I think a lot of people talk about and maybe some of those more extreme PTSD cases. How are you there for a love of balance that we talked about earlier, that balance that being supportive, but also keeping everyone safe at the same time?
0: Absolutely. And that's a very delicate balance. Being able to be supportive would look like making sure that you're aware of what their PTSD shows up like. And where that line is, is when it could become unsafe for them or for others and then taking appropriate action. And so if PTSD reactions put others in the harm's way, having a safety plan and a plan of action would be critical. I know that's a general answer, but that's the overall plan that you would want to shoot for.
1: And I have two questions from Jeanette. How do we recognize a person is having more than a bad day? and how to respond mm. to maybe like outbursts that'll actually disarm rather than antagonize the situation. So it sounds like she's asking, how do we deescalate? How do we recognize it's more than just a bad day? And how do we deescalate if we're in a, a situation where there could be an outburst?
0: That's such a phenomenal question, because that is truly an art, I believe at times. But one of the deciding factors or discerning factors that may help is if the reaction or the behavioral presentation seems to be so disproportionate to what was said or done, that's usually a decent sign that it's more than a bad day, could be a trauma reaction. And then the other piece is in discerning is does it happen more than once? Because that could indicate something else is going on and not just having a bad day. So really the proportion of the response And the frequency can sometimes help you clue into what might really be going on with somebody.
1: That's a really good answer. If this is a pattern or cycle, there's a good chance that there's something more going on than just having a bad day, right?
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: Okay. And her second question is, what are some signs that maybe a friend could be struggling with things that maybe could be helped with counseling or better understanding of their symptoms? It seems like she's asking, like, you know, if I know someone that has this, Maybe we see a pattern here, like we just talked about. How do we know, like, we have that conversation? Hey, maybe you should look at getting help. That's a hard thing to do, come in and tell someone, hey, I think you need help. Are there symptoms we can look at? Hey, man, it's it's time that we really need to maybe have the conversation with them, at least give it an effort to try to get them to go seek
0: help. I think that's a great question in asking, in the response of maybe shifting the words, instead of help, connecting with people in their suffering. Is it, hey, you know, You seem to be trying to work through working through this on your own or with the supportive circle around you. And I'm just wondering if you're still suffering and if you might be open and willing to know that there are people out there that can help you move through this so that suffering ends. I think that's a powerful way to connect people because we have some things that help us. But eventually We all get to the point where our usual bag of tricks isn't helping us. And that's where somebody else can give us some insight and guidance and maybe some skills or resources that can help us move past being stuck in suffering.
1: That's really good. That's a good indication, too, when we need help, right? Or I'm sorry, I probably phrased that wrong. But when our typical bag of tricks don't work, that's a good time we need to seek out help and say, okay. Me personally, I notice if I go to the gym, I handle stress much, much better. And so if I feel like I'm really right, and it's all scientific and everyone knows it, but it really does work. So it's like, okay, I I can't shake this off by how I'm thinking about it. And I recognize that my wife and I went through an adoption and at moments it was really stressful, really stressful. And it's just one of those things that, you know, it's a beautiful thing. But there's moments where you're like, oh, is this really going to happen kind of thing? And so I remember several times during that, that situation, it, it was like a two and a half year process of going, you know what? I know I'm not thinking right, but I can't shake it off. Mm-hmm. Let me go to the gym real quick. I just need to blow off some steam and get this off. <laughs> it was a healthy coping right. mechanism. But then it's like, but there's times where that bag of tricks doesn't work anymore. So that's a good indication of when we need to go, maybe seek professional help. So that was a great question. I have one more question for yeah. you here. It's from our friend, Laura. When you are in a situation okay. that you know might trigger the PTSD, how do you try to proactively deal with it, or are you able to possibly cut it off before it's triggered?
0: So that would be that would be somebody recognizing what somebody's PTSD triggers are internally, externally in the vi- environment, the people, places, things, situations, topics, conversations, kind of things. Knowing what they are allows you to either. You can only strategically avoid things for so long to where you want to shift into strategically working through them. And that sometimes requires the help of a professional.
1: I do want to tell a story, too, before we get out of here, Kelly, that that just made me think of. I was working with someone on employment one time and helping this person get a job, and she went through a really tough relationship issue. Her husband left her and her child, and he was a maintenance worker. So anytime we're working with job openings and there was a factory type setting and we were kind of working through this, she would never last more than a few days there. And she was like really like like stable. You know what I mean? She was like stable. She was well spoken, well dressed. And I remember we had a conversation and we're just talking about, you know, what is it? Because at that that point in time, we're working together. The entry level factory jobs were hiring the most at that point it finally came out in the open. She's like, you know what? I finally realized what my issue was, Mike. And I was like, what is it? She's like, he left us and it was so hard to overcome. He worked in maintenance. And every time I go to one of those environments where they wear the blue maintenance shirts with little name tags on them, she's like, Mm -hmm. I know I get irritable. I get real smart mouth Mm -hmm. and I can't stand to be there. And I just want to leave. And I'm like, yes. And at first she didn't recognize it. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you had a history where this was fine. But after the trauma. She can't work in those environments now. And so until that gets dealt with, that's not an option on her plate. So we had to try to like, you know, look at other options for her to help her reintegrate employment back into her life. And so the reason why I say that is for one, obviously, if someone's going through that, that could be why you may not be successful in certain type of careers. And second of
0: Absolutely.
1: all, second of all, if you're an employer, you know, you might be thinking, well, that's not my problem. I just got to get the work done. But you might be having turnover issues. You're having problems trying to get help. Every employer now that I know is saying, we can't find enough people and all this different stuff. Maybe it's time to get a little deeper into some of this stuff and really help people process it. You now, I'm a big advocate for having some kind of support worker on site. Even if you don't you can't afford to bring a staff person, a social worker counselor yeah. on site, that you partner with the agency and reach out to some and, or a consultant like yourself and say, Hey, will you come for a couple hours like every Tuesday or once a month and just be available in case my staff wants to talk, need someone to talk to, and they can reach out to you? I'm a huge advocate for that, not just putting an EAP. Absolutely.
0: Be Being yeah. that lighthouse for people because that's what, you know, we, we don't expect every profession to be experts in everybody else's profession. And right. we develop an artful eye to that kind of stuff where we can more readily see it, hear it, even feel it. And then guide people to the helpful resources that they need. And I want to, I really want to leave people with this thought that I know help comes with a lot of loaded thoughts and feelings and and response for people. But a, a, a true help strategy can be so many things. And of course, I'm biased in mental health because I work in mental health. And so I'm always promoting how working with a professional, even a handful of times can be helpful to people. But help means many things. And so, if anything, I just hope that people out there promote their awareness of what mental health can look like and maybe when they're suffering and just consider that help can look in a variety of ways.
1: And I want to emphasize something because we talked about this in the last podcast and I mentioned it to my wife. We were kind of laughing about it. Like, as soon as you think counseling, you think, (laughs) I think of Seinfeld, you know what I mean? Where I don't know if it's like George is on on the couch, right? Like, I, I don't know why, but you know, my wife, uh, was going to be a counselor. She was taking some master level classes and then she met moi and uh, I kind of ruined her life like that. So she kind of wanted oh. to get the into- field. So we had a conversation like, so you may, I was like, honey, you may like think differently about this, but like, what's the first thing you think of a mental health or a counseling experience is going to be? She's like, the first <laughs> thing I think of is I'm going to be laying on the couch. Well- and, I, and it, like, and that, it's such a weird, <laughs> awkward, it, and it may be, I'm sure there's some kind of science to why that would happen, but I don't even know if, I don't know anywhere that actually happens. I mean, I, well, what is we, it still? So, well,
0: definitely couches still out there. And, you know, there is some, there is a strategic dynamic purpose to that if it's helpful for particular clients. But just to paint the picture for people coming in, counseling is a lot of things. You know, there's chairs, there's couches, you can walk around, you can, there's expressive arts modalities. There's talking, there's feeling, there's crying. In a counseling session, there can be so many ways to show up and work through. And so if people have those fears, maybe that's something that we could do some other time, Mike, is maybe demystify what a counseling session is really like um, and maybe get people to think about, get them to think about what kind of helpful environment would they find? Like, for instance, some people need a counselor to be more engaging and talkative and dynamic, Whereas other people need this time and space to just be and think and feel and slow down because they don't have any other time or space to do that. And so that takes a particular kind of counselor on the other end that can be in that space with them.
1: Right. It, it's such good information. So maybe can I know.
0: that some other time. <laughs>
1: See, I'd be, me personally, I'd be more likely to go to a group meeting because I feel like I could navigate the room well. I, I feel safer in groups. So where if I, I don't want the spotlight. Right. And so if I didn't, if I, I, I would just kind of slip in and be quiet, then if I got comfortable, I would kind of like, you know, kind of be vulnerable at that. But to me, it's easier to be vulnerable inside of a group than maybe one-on-one because it feels like the spotlight's 100% on you at that point. So I know some people are complete opposite where they would not want to air that stuff out in front of everyone. And me, I'm different. I Mm kind of live open, but me, it's like when the spotlight's directly on you, there's, it feel like there's nowhere to run, (laughs) but that's not how it really is. It's like this, we need to do a separate episode. Probably auntie misdefine it because I think that's one of the problem that, that really gets, uh, gets people or helps make some hesitant. It gets, it gets, yeah, yeah, it makes them hesitant. It gets in the way of like, you get nervous because you're like, well, I've never done this before. I don't know what it's going to be like. You know, I still get nervous for dentist appointments and I don't have teeth issues. Like I just go for cleaning. I'm still a little nervous nope. when I go, <laughs> you know, or doctor's visit. But you, at least you've done it so many times, you actually know what it's like. And so a lot We're of people counseling, think, they, they
0: may not know. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's something really to think of. So I'm glad we put that on there because I think I want to hit this in every podcast. You said something before in another episode that I think is brilliant. You know, we go to the dentist twice a year. We go to an annual visit for our doctor. Why don't we do an annual checkup or twice a year, once, twice a year for a mental health checkup just to see where we're at. So Kelly, before we get out of here, if someone wants to reach out to you for more information with your consulting, or family community services, how can they reach out to you?
0: So here at Family and Community Services Valley Counseling, you can reach me. By calling or clicking on the website, please don't hesitate to reach out. And then, of course, if you're interested in hosting a tailored mental health event at your company or with your team, KellyYunkinsConsultant.com, feel free to reach out on my website. or And my phone number is listed on there. Give me a call or schedule a time to connect.
1: Yeah, and the Family Community Services website is FCS serves. F for family, C's, community, S's, and services, serves.org. And so they're on Facebook and all kinds of social media. And I will put a link in the show notes to both family, community services, and Kelly's Consulting Company. So if you look on there, I know iTunes allows it. Not every app allows hyperlinks to go through, but I think a lot of them do now. So you can find that directly in there. If not, you could just Google either of those names and you'll find it pretty easily. So Kelly, thank you so much. It was awesome. I think we painted a good picture and a different picture than just what you normally hear in a three to five minute video on PTSD. So I'm so glad we did this today. And uh, thanks so much for stopping by.
0: It's always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me.
1: And to all the listeners out there, just take this into consideration, apply it to your personal life, apply it to your workplace. So really take this message in, listen to it a couple of times. If you have to do some research online and learn more about this and other mental health issues so we can help be supportive and help make our communities just healthier, safer, and just more beautiful places to work and live. So everybody out there listening, thank you and be safe.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.